Welcome to Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store, Regent Street in London. Please welcome our guest moderator, news editor of Empire Magazine, Chris Hewitt. Hi everyone, thanks for coming. Uh, Blackfish is a compelling and haunting documentary about the tragic consequences of keeping killer whales in captivity. Before we see or meet the uh, filmmaker behind the, uh, the film, let's have a look at the trailer. When you look into their eyes, you know somebody is home. They're an animal that possesses great spiritual power not to be meddled with. We need SO to respond for a dead person at SeaWorld. A whale has eaten one of the trainers. Tilakumbo is the one that went after her. Don is the senior trainer here at Shamu Stadium. She captured what it means to be a SeaWorld trainer, that it made me realize what happened to her really could have happened to anyone. I've been expecting somebody to be killed by a telecom. We weren't told much about it, other than it was trainer error. It didn't just happen. It's not a singular event. You have to go back to understand this. The speedboat herded them in, and they could just pick out the young ones. This is the worst thing that I've ever done. When Tilikum arrived at SeaWorld, he was twice as large as the next animal. We stored these whales in what we call a module, which was 20 feet across and 30 feet deep, and the lights were all turned out. Probably led to what I think is a psychosis. All whales in captivity are all psychologically traumatized. It's not just Tilikum. If you were in a bathtub for 25 years, don't you think you'd get a little psychotic? Don would tell you that it was her mistake. They blamed her. It's just a bold-faced lie. I was just instructed to get rid of the day. The industry has a vested interest in spinning these. That sells a lot of Shamu dolls. It sells a lot of tickets at the gate. There's no record of an orca doing any harm in the wild. Please welcome the director of Blackfish, Gabriella Capperthwaite. Hello. Hi. Nice to see you. Gabriella, welcome. Uh, now for the Thanks people. Thanks for having me. Oh, indeed. Um, well, we've obviously seen the trailer, uh -huh. but can you put in the context for people what is Blackfish? Uh, Blackfish is the name that uh, the uh, first uh, Nations peoples that. Um, uh, Native Americans, the Pacific Northwest, used to call them. Um, Old-time fishermen used to call them that as well. So, okay. um, yeah, they were never meant to be. It's sort of um, the lore behind that name is that they were never meant to be uh, captured and mm -hmm. they were never meant to be harmed. Okay. Was that always a title when you embarked upon this project? or did um, it I started reading a book um, called A Whale Called Killer, and uh, it featured some, you know, old, you know, timey kind of fisherman types. And they said, hey, we see a pot of blackfish in the distance. And at that moment, I was like, that's my title. <laughs> Fair enough. And, uh, and how did you find this story for this? What was your inspiration to make this documentary? Uh, um, it's hard to say that this is 
inspiration because mm -hmm. it feels sort of terrible to say mm -hmm. that, but it was um, the death of Don Brancho was um, kind of confounded me, um, terrified me, mm -hmm. and uh, it just, uh, I think, sort of gave me the gigantic question that I sort of had to answer, mm -hmm. and that is, you know, why did a top SeaWorld trainer come to be killed by a killer whale? But still, um, when you have the question in your head, to actually go ahead and then start making a documentary, how difficult was that? Because you have to draw upon a lot of materials. There's a lot of archive footage in the film, which is often horrifying. How did you go right. about doing that? Was it a bit of detective work on your part, finding these hidden tapes and mm. talking to people? Yeah, I mean, um, I was lucky enough to stumble upon an article called Killer in the Pool by Tim Zimmerman. For mm -hmm. He wrote for Outside Magazine. Yes. Um, that was just... Uh, to me, a, a pretty incredible, um, it had information in there that I had never, uh, I didn't know it existed. I didn't know how, that they were captured, where they were captured from. I sort of didn't know how whales got into these marine parks in the first place. Um, so I think from that moment, I sort of had, you know, I contacted him, spoke to him a bit, and we started kind of going, you know, I started contacting some of his resources okay. from that. And sort of, I think the moment that I knew it could be a film was when, um, I sort of found out that there were former SeaWorld trainers who were willing to talk. Mm -hmm. um, that's when I knew I had a film, because I knew I needed apostles, is what I call them, yes. messengers <laughs> from the other side, Indeed. to be able to sort of deliver the message. Okay. Right. And uh, we actually have a clip, we have a few clips from the film, and the first one uh, actually features a few of those ex-trainers. Uh, let's take a look at the clip. When you look into their eyes, you know somebody is home. Somebody's looking back. You form a very personal relationship with your animal. There's something absolutely amazing about working with an animal. You are a team, uh, and you build a relationship together, and um, you both understand the goal, and you help each other. I've been with this whale since I was 18 years old. And I've seen her have all four babies. Grown up together. Huh. That's the joy I got out of it. Is just is a relationship like I've never had. <clears throat> it's um, it's a fascinating clip because you, you talked about apostles, <clears throat> and the film comes down, I'd say, fairly strongly on the side of anti-captivity. And uh, but at the same time, that gentleman there, the last ex-trainer. Um, believes that what that killer whales should or, or can be kept in captivity with um, with relatively little consequences right. if they're treated uh, correctly. Um, was it important for you to have balance as well in, in the people you spoke to for this? Yeah, um, you know, I think with that clip in particular, I thought I knew I had to start the movie from um, this sort of bright-eyed vision and notion of SeaWorld that we all have mm. growing up as kids and, you know, the lovable, you know, Shamu icon. Yeah. Um, and this also kind of burning design, you know, I don't come from any animal activism. Yes. I'm sort of a mother who took her kids to SeaWorld. I'm documentary filmmaker, but I mean, I took my kids to SeaWorld in San Diego. And so um, I needed to start the film there with the idea that, that SeaWorld is this, you know, on every parent's bucket list of, you know, where you take your kids. And, <laughs> yeah. And, um, there's a reason for that, you know? And so I kind of wanted to start up here with the dream that the trainers had 
um, you know, because for a lot of them it was a lifelong dream to sort of train killer whales. And that from that moment, I, I kind of wanted them to follow their trajectory mm -hmm. for the storyline. Mm -hmm. So I had to start at the top, you know, and start with the dream. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, and you know, start with some of the sort of maybe more positive, um, a positive sort of lives that they envisioned having yeah. um, when they started working there. And then, I guess, sort of peel back the onion from yeah. that moment on. And did you, uh, in terms of your research, did you actually uh, at any point uh, have first-hand experience of, of killer whales? I mean, there, there are scenes of them in the wild, there are scenes of them in captivity at SeaWorld and other places. Did, did you actually go and experience it yourself? I did go to yeah. SeaWorld, mm -hmm. and we filmed a bit there, and then um, and I saw them in the wild, so I saw both. Yeah, you know, and having been to SeaWorld before, I obviously had that experience. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, from quite a different lens <laughs> after after embarking on working on the film. I can imagine. What's that experience like when you see them up close, especially in the wild? Oh my gosh, they are um, so they're enormous. Um, it's very wild. Um, so in in, in nature, they kind of ignore you. It's, I mean, they just, they're, they're sort of just living their lives. And so you see these gigantic, you know, uh, dorsals swing mm. by, but they're not that, you know, curious or really that interested. I mean, that was like my experience. And then in SeaWorld, they're surface resting. So they're, um, I think it's called logging. Mm -hmm. They just sort of, rest on the surface. That's not typical natural killer whale behavior. Yeah. So, and then they come up to the glass and then, uh, you know, may sort of consider you or look at you. I mean, you are the only stimulus that they have, really, mm -hmm. you yeah. know, is, is people and trainers. Um, so it is interesting because that's not their typical behavior to sort of stare at you. Mm. Yeah. So uh, anyway, uh, it's almost like seeing two different animals. Okay. Yeah, and a lot of people describe killer whales at SeaWorld or marine parks as being kind of facsimiles of the real thing. Yeah, yeah. You're not really getting a killer whale, necessarily. Okay. Um, I imagine that a lot of people uh, like myself have come to this documentary not knowing a great deal about killer whales. Uh, is that where you started? I knew nothing. <laughs> you know nothing? Yeah, I remember saying something like, um, well, I couldn't spell cetacean. Um, I, remember say, I, m I remember thinking that uh, instead of saying echolocation, I said echolocution. Mm -hmm. Like, I, there's things that, and I, and I thought echolocation was sort of like sonar, like what bats have. Okay, yeah. You know, yeah. and um, I didn't understand that echolocation is actually kind of an ultrasound, essentially, that these, you know, creatures are able to sort of, you know, read kind of what's happening inside you, like what it, they, they call it seeing with your ears, almost. Mm. Okay, yeah. No idea about any of that. Okay. No idea. <laughs> yeah. The, what, what really surprised you about, about killer whales in, in the course of your research? Apart from learning those terms. Right. Yeah. Um, the brain. Yeah. The I mean, just blew me away. Um, so their brain is, uh, that was revelatory for me, I think, just having that interview with that neuroscientist, uh, Lori Marino. The brain is um, tremendously large, but we always hear that about primates, you know, highly intelligent, you know, large brain versus body size. I mean, but the brain of a killer whale is actually very large, um, obviously, but then they actually have a part that we don't even have. Mm. So they have everything that we have in our brains, mm. but then they have an entire part that we don't have. We can't even identify it <laughs> because we don't have it. Yeah. You know, we, yeah. we haven't seen it. Yeah. 
um, that blew my mind. No, no pun intended. <laughs> it, it totally blew me away. But you, you focus uh, in the movie on, on Tillicum, who is uh, a killer whale who's been involved with several deaths uh, over the years. And, and uh, the, the one that, that drew your attention, obviously, was Don Brancho, the most, the most recent one. And can you, can you talk about the decision to focus on, on Tillicum and, uh, and how you went about doing that? Um, you know, I knew that for this documentary, I wanted to tell a story. Um, I knew I didn't want it to be just a bunch of facts or I hate SeaWorld incidents, you know, whatever thrown into this big film. I knew that I just wanted to follow a storyline because, again, I didn't um, come at the subject matter um, from sort of an activist position. I just don't haven't earned those stripes. I didn't know. So I just, what I could do and what I knew that I could do would, would be what I'm equipped to do, and that's just sort of tell a story. Um, so I, I knew I wanted to start with Tillicum and going 40 years back, mm. thereabouts, yeah. um, and follow his trajectory along with the trainers. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, I guess for, for whatever reason, I just wanted the documentary to, um, to not be sort of um, pedantic Mm-hmm. and um, not be necessarily prescriptive, not yeah. telling you what you should feel or what you should do or anything like that. I wanted this to feel like a film, mm-hmm. and I feel like as a result, you will sit through this because you're watching a story, mm-hmm. not because you're sort of being told what to feel. And if you sit through this story, by the end of the 80 minutes, you will have digested um, a bunch of facts and a bunch of sort of truthful facts. Yes. And... Um, I just think the medium of storytelling was sort of the way to get at people who might not have cared much about animals, might have taken your kids to SeaWorld like I did, mm. um, you know, didn't necessarily come to get a dose of medicine. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so I think that's, you know, Tillicum to me provided he was the ultimate protagonist, antagonist. Yes, <laughs> you know? because um, when, I, when I first read about the film, I saw it described as a... Uh, obviously a documentary, but also a right. psychological thriller. Right. And it is that, because the way you position Tillicum, he's like a ticking time bomb. Everything that happens to him in, uh, in the sea world, in, in his captivity, uh, just builds and builds and builds and builds yeah. until uh, the inevitable, I guess, happens. Yeah. Um, can you talk about that decision to, to go with yeah. that style? And I almost hate to admit this, but um, you know, I started out, you know, because I, my entry point to the film was through the death of Don Brancho, mm. um, I read the autopsy reports really early on, and I sort of learned about that Don Brancho incident really early on, and it was so terrifying to me. Mm. Um, it was just harrowing. So um, I was actually very scared of Tillicum. Okay. And so and I didn't have a natural empathy. Um, sadly, I just didn't have this natural empathy for this whale. I, yeah. I knew that p- there was a reason maybe for what he did or whatever, but I was, I was sort of like too scared. It was like, it's just so easy to sort of um, demonize, mm. you know, uh, an animal in that situation. So I think um, when I started, when I went back to sort of sea land and heard about his capture and, you know, when he was captured from Iceland, he, we, we don't depict this in the film, but, you know, he was apparently kept in this, um, like a, a tank or like a hull of a ship or something for a year. Um, you know, this is a, essentially a toddler, right? Mm. From his, taken from his family. 
was kept there with no stimulation and then brought to sea land of the Pacific. So he was sort of already damaged, you can imagine, maybe, yeah. psychologically, yeah. or at least he was traumatized. Um, so anyway, I had to go back that far to really understand and to sort of feel him as a, you know, a, a being and, um, and in order to empathize. So yeah. I feel like it was almost me needing to do that okay. as much yeah. as, yeah. you know, part of the storytelling. Yeah. Did you, uh, did you get to see Telecom? Did you get to meet, uh, did. meet him? I did, that? and uh, SeaWorld Orlando, he's still there performing. Mm -hmm. um, and he came out and did the big splash <laughs> and got everybody wet and then um, got up on the slide out and did his bow. Mm -hmm. um, he is so enormous. Mm. Um, and he is this impossible, beautiful bull. You know, he, he's huge. But after this bow and, you know, whatever, he just sort of d does this slow swim and that's it. Hmm. I mean, there's no, some of the other whales are sort of doing other things. He doesn't seem to be doing anything else. He just does this like slow lap around the pool. Okay. Um, yeah. Doesn't um, look healthy. Oh, indeed. But going back to the, um, the detective story part of filmmaking for you as a, as a documentary maker, um, like I say, there's an incredible amount of archive footage. You talked about finding the XC world employees. Did they then open gates to finding this footage, or how exactly did you go about getting it? Um, a lot of it came from them. Yeah. It actually came from their personal uh, archives. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, gosh, I think that OSHA actually having... Been in, in court with SeaWorld. And OSHA is, sorry. OSHA, yeah. Uh, wow. Occupational Safety and Health Administration? <laughs> Administration? <laughs> yeah, let me go. Right, right? Okay, yeah. good. Um, they, um, because of the court case, a lot of uh, sort of exhibits or evidence yeah. uh, came to sort of be, you know, public record or almost public record. Mm -hmm. And I was able to Freedom of Information Act, FOIA, for mm -hmm. some of this footage. Okay, so. so the footage of Tilikum kind of being captured and being transported to, to see what was that difficult to... That's archival from yeah. Lord knows. I don't even remember. We had so much archival footage from, from different places, from different times. Um, but no, that did not come from OSHA or from the personal... You know, that okay. came from... I mean, you could, f you could find <laughs> some of this stuff on the internet. Wow. I mean, you know, a really? lot of it you pay for, some of it you have to fair use, but uh -huh. um, there is footage. I mean, this stuff has really been documented and a lot of people say, oh, it's so great that you made this film and I sort of feel like sometimes I just assembled what everybody else has done just in one place. You know, I really don't feel like I did anything beyond that. Oh, I, you know, well, I mean, yeah. you know, I, yeah, yeah it, was, it existed. These stories existed and everybody um, kind of in this kind of, you know, uh, animal activist role, mm -hmm. they know all of this. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times you just ask somebody, where is, is there footage of Telecom and this and that? And, or is there you know, footage from the Pen Cove captures and mm -hmm. people just sort of send you to the right places. So. Oh, amazing. Uh, yeah. In fact, we have some footage of Telecom now in this uh, second clip. So uh, let's take a look at that. He arrived, I think, in 1992. I was at Whale Dolphin Stadium when he arrived and he's twice as large as the next animal in the facility. Yeah, he's right at about 12,000 pounds. That's, that's incredible. He looks fantastic. When Tillicum arrived at SeaWorld, he was attacked viciously, repeatedly by Katina and others. In the wild, it's a very matriarchal society. Male whales are kept at the perimeter 
in captivity, the animals are squeezed into very close proximity. Tillicum, the poor guy is so large, he couldn't get away because he just is not as mobile relative to the smaller and more agile females. And where was he going to run? There's no place to run. I think he spent a lot of time um, in isolation. SeaWorld claims that, oh, no, he's always in with the other, with the females. But I mean, I, you know, from what I saw, he was mostly put with the females for breeding purposes, and he didn't spend a lot of time um, you know, with the other whales. It's for his own protection. You know, he gets beat up. And so by segregating him, it provides a physical barrier so the females can't kick his butt. Um, it's a very harrowing and, and sometimes horrifying documentary. You, you absolutely don't hold back. There are sequences not only do we see uh, trainers being dragged under the water by killer whales, there's an astonishing sequence where uh, one trainer actually has to extricate himself from the jaws of a killer whale, but you actually show killer whales attacking other killer whales. And there's a, there's a horrible sequence where, where we see one killer whale being killed. Um, how important was it for you to show this stuff and not to hold back? Um... And, and you're speaking about the, the killer whale. Yeah, the, the, bleeds, um, out, the bleeds out. Yeah. The bleeds out or yeah. whatever. Yeah. He actually um, wasn't, wasn't necessarily being, being killed. He yeah. was just sort of, you know, uh, those are just rake marks from a, you know, a sure. whale just putting him into place kind of. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I didn't, um, I, just, I, I just couldn't kind of hold back. I think mm. once you just sort of know the truth, you just your directive is just to tell the truth. I mean, that's, you know, like I mm. think that for so long we have just gotten such the polar opposite messaging from these marine parks, you know, that they're happy and that the, tra the whales are happy and the trainers are safe and whatever. That's, the, that's been the message for whatever, 40 years. Yeah. So I had a chance to sort of tell the truth and it's just, you know, why, why sort of hold back mm. when you finally are armed with, you know, this footage and these stories. Um, to me, it just felt like my mandate, kind of. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and uh, at, at the end of the film, not to give too much away, but I know there's a, there's a subtitle that says SeaWorld repeatedly declined to be interviewed for this film. Right. Um, uh, did you ever get any feedback from them? Did they try and stop this film in any way? Uh, what no, was the reaction No, they to didn't. It? They didn't. Um, you know, they uh, just told me that they, would, they were interested in being interviewed and they would, were really sort of engaging that idea for a while and then didn't. And then they said they didn't, you know, they declined to be interviewed. Um, yeah, I mean, I think they didn't stop us. That was really my interaction with them. I did see them at the OSHA trial. Mm -hmm. I saw them, you know, up on the witness stand and members from SeaWorld sort of testifying. And um, from that, I kind of got an idea of what it would have been like to interview them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I realized that I'm not sure that really would have enhanced the film. Okay. Um, I think there's just, they're, they're so media trained. Yes. And they just have this, it's almost an accent. It's really strange. It's just, it's so media trained that they, um, they can redirect a question just like the best of them. And they can kind of give out a half truth and they laugh at the right times and try and disarm everybody by kind of like lightening a story. But I don't know. It was just like, I was, it was really fascinating. Um, I just don't know. Um, I just don't know. I, I'm not sure that uh -huh. would have enhanced the film. Okay. Um, and I also think, you know, again, they've had 40 years of sort of controlling the message. And then, you know, I have a 
80-minute document here mm. that sort of challenges that. Mm. And I think to be able to really just tell the truth was so much more important than being, you know, five minute, give five minutes to SeaWorld and then five minutes to the former trainer who doesn't like SeaWorld, you know? Yeah, yeah, sure. Rather than doing that, I sort of was like, I need to be faithful to the, tru to the truth and let that be um, kind of my directive. Yeah, uh, and again, uh, going on this journey of, of discovery, did, did anything really surprise you about uh, SeaWorld practices over the years? I mean, I, I noticed there's a, there's a document in the movie about the number of incidents that perhaps went unreported uh, yeah. where uh, killer whales and, and trainers might have come together. Right, um, right. Was that a, a big surprise? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's like, how, how much time do you have? You know, like, it's really like, um, <laughs> yeah, the incident, I know, yeah. right? Let's go through it, every incident. No, um, you know, there's the, the two sides that I, um, I hoped to represent in the film. And one is, you know, obviously um, the trainer incidents and kind mm -hmm. of what happens to trainers when they're at SeaWorld. And, you know, a lot of it is, um, you know, first of all, these are, these are creatures that I think on a daily basis exercise restraint and I think the species has to be has to be given credit mm -hmm. for just doing that you know for being in such a frustrating environment and um and and just completely just exercising you know uh self-restraint self-discipline not attacking not going at people and exacting every you know frustration mm. um and yet there are times when they just do and they just sort of have had enough and um they teach lessons. This is, you know, all from trainers that have, that, that have spoken about this. Um, they, um, you know, if you, as a trainer, piss a whale off, um, you, that whale can wait a week. And, you know, um, to, you know, put you in your place mm. uh, a week later, but won't necessarily be frustrated just at everybody, you know? Okay. Will be frustrated just at you and we'll single you out later wow so i mean this is and you know um again that i think that trainers would say that they the whales teach lessons more than they really i mean what tillicum did was just so horrific yeah. and so off the charts mm -hmm. compared to sort of what other whales do i mean they're very different what tillicum did to dawn um was uh you can't even, whatever. It's just, it's a dismemberment. I mean, it's hor it's horrific. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What Kasatka did to Ken Peters, you know, the takedown, yeah, um, was uh, more measured, I guess. You know, yeah, that was when and was Ken a, a Peters, lesson. yeah, that's yeah. right. And Ken Peters, as, as a trainer, was up on the witness stand because I saw him in the trial, um, and he uh, mentioned that he knew um, beyond the shadow of a doubt that she would not kill him, that he was. He was sure the entire time. Wow. I mean, you watch that video and you're like, really? <laughs> Didn't look that sure to it me is, at it's all. It's an astonishing but. sequence. You should really uh, check it out in the, in the movie. But um, uh, Don Brancho was killed in 2010. Yeah. Um, how quickly, Len, did you get the ball rolling on making this documentary? And how long did it take to, to finish the thing? Um, probably the summer of 2010. So okay. a few months later. I just was reading about it in development after it happened. And then... Um, started really sort of re reaching out to people mm -hmm. um, that summer, mm -hmm. so 2010. So it's a year and a half or almost two years. And funding wise, because I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of people in the audience who you know, are keen filmmakers and uh, maybe even keen documentary film filmmakers. Uh, uh, and where does the funding come from 
for something like this. I mean, yeah. an, an independent, fi- yeah, precisely, an independent film, independent documentary. Right. Um, you didn't go to Kickstarter. You didn't go to crowdsourcing. And no. Where did no. Come from? I wrote a treatment, and um, and I just kind of had that treatment, and uh, um, started doing some research and started some development, and just took it to somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody who had money. Um, it's uh, it start, all started with a friend of mine, Rick Brookwell. Uh-huh. Um, and he was, um, you know, a former employer of mine from days, you know, past. But he knew someone who knew someone. And so we were able to get funding from two very generous um, people who had never made a film before. Mm-hmm. And I think saw maybe that a documentary would be a, a, bit, a bit less than a feature film. Yes. And, um, and they, they came aboard. I think they read the treatment and thought, this is actually something that we want to know about as well. And uh, so we kind of embarked on it from then on. And so in terms of the logistics of making a film like this, are you based in one place? Do you fly around the country going from interview to interview? Or how does it work? You do. So um, I'm based in Los Angeles, and uh, nobody lived in Los Angeles. So it was flights and trying to consolidate them and a lot mm. of frequent flyer miles and <laughs> you know a lot of sleeping on on floors and okay. things like that yeah okay uh we have one more clip from the film now this is a, a more ominous clip now about a, a, a killer whale or it's been an accident involving a killer whale let's have a look i actually started the rule like five days after that event occurred and um we didn't we weren't told much about it other than it was trainer error um and you know, especially when you're new into the program, you don't really question a whole lot. Well, you know, years later, when you actually look at the footage, you go, you know what, he didn't do anything wrong. That whale just landed on him, you know? That whale just went to the wrong spot, or it, w- it could have been aggression, who knows? But it was not the trainer's fault at all, you know, watching that video. When I saw the video of the killer whale landing on John, I mean, it just absolutely took my breath away. I gasped. You know, the, I watched it two or three times, and every time I saw that, I just gasped. I could not believe what I was seeing. What kept his body together was that, you know, his, his wetsuit basically held him together. But I know he's had multiple surgeries, and he's got tons of hardware in his body. And it's hard for me to believe that I didn't actually see that video while I was actually an animal trainer, because it seems to me that every person who works with killer whales should have to watch that video. Um, so clearly, uh, Gabriela, you'd seen that, that, that tape before you conducted those interviews, but did you sometimes do an interview with someone and then maybe later go, well, there's this footage you have to see, and then you had to go back and interview them? How many times did you have to interview people, and did you discover new things along the way? Um, I interviewed probably once, everybody once, and then mm-hmm. twice for a shorter, mm-hmm. a shorter time. Um, if I were, yeah, if there was something that I learned mm-hmm. during the process, during, during the year and a half mm-hmm. that I had to sort of come back and get them to weigh in on. Mm-hmm. Um, but most everything I got the first interview, the first go around. Um, yeah. But you know, there's footage like that. Yeah. Um, where I had seen it. It's, it's interesting because you can actually see footage and I saw that footage, but it's so grainy and happened so fast that you're like, oh, oh, what a bummer. What a mistake, what a terrible mistake. You know, like, gosh, how, how horrible um, that this set of circumstances just came to be. But you know, wow, that's nobody's fault, you know? Mm. Then you just need people to sort of put it into context and contextualize it for you. So when the trainers would comment on that video, I'd be like, oh yeah, that video where he gets, you know, that's terrible. They're like, well, no, he's, 
Uh, you know, we, we're not sure because we're not in touch with him. But, um, you know, I was a paraplegic at least for a while. Mm. Um, you know, that... And people said that, you know, the whale, again, they are... Their timing can be perfect. Yeah. They just sort of know what they're doing. So yeah. every trainer who watches that video who I've spoken to say whales do those things when they mean to do those things, you know? And that's... They do those things when they're... You know, this is part of the frustration of captivity, Absolutely. you know? Did anyone um, not want to take part that you approached? Besides SeaWorld? Yeah, indeed. Um, I couldn't find a lot of people. I didn't get a lot of calls back from, you know, all the trainers who had accidents, who I tried to get in touch with, um, were not, I was not able to find them in most yeah, cases okay. or hear back from them in most cases. So you can kind of, do the math, really, <laughs> what, what might have happened between A and B there. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then we've got some uh, time for some questions for Gabriella. If you have anything you want to ask her, uh, please put your hand up. And yes, there's a, wow, a lot of hands, actually. We've got a roofie microphone going right around. So uh, there's a lady here right in the front row. Hello. There we go. Hi. Hi, good evening, Gabriella. Um, first of all, I wanted to thank you very much for having the guts to do this. Thank you. Um, for many years, my name's Margot. I'm from the Marine Connection in the UK. And for many years, I worked with Rick O'Barry, and he was very much a song and a, a voice in the wilderness. But we've now got Jeff and, you know, all the other people that are coming out. But what I wanted to ask you is, did you, because SeaWorld, um, Blackstone are such a big corporation and they're so slick and they promote this razzmatazz, that they don't want people to see behind. Did you ever get the feeling that now, because of things like your, your documentary and books like Death at SeaWorld, mm -hmm. did you get the feeling that they now feel there's nowhere to hide, they do have to be a bit more forthcoming? Or do you still think, because they're such big multinational company, they can just keep giving out the old bullshit that they are, excuse me, but you know. I mean, did you ever feel that they are feeling slightly threatened by the fact that some of their ex-employees now have the guts to come out and talk to people like you? You know, I don't... I don't know. The film will be released in July, and I think that's when they can really kind of decide whether or not they think it has, you know, any potential to really, you know, get people to not go through those turnstiles. Um, so it's sort of yet to be determined, I think, how they will react. Um, you know, I do, they've issued some statements in the press. Um, you know, I think they were at Sundance, uh, you know, and watched the film very early on. They definitely know we exist. Um, but they've gone public. You know, their stocks have gone public. So, you know, and one of the risk factors for not having gone public earlier were, one of them was Blackfish, another was the book Death at SeaWorld, um, the death of Don Brancho, you know, these were all sort of risk factors. So they're very aware of us, but um, I don't know. It's yet to be yet to be determined. Okay, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. And there's uh, some more questions. There's a lady behind you here. If you can just pass the microphone back. Thank you. Hi. Um, Hi. Thank you, first of all. Um, I just wanted to ask, how aware were you of people's preconceptions about orca or killer whales when you were making this film, and how did that inform how you went about making it? Um... I made it from a position of um, someone who went to SeaWorld. So I knew because uh, I found out that the preconceptions about 
orcas or about SeaWorld were that, you know, orcas are our friends. They are um, pretty happy, you know, at SeaWorld. That's what, how I came into this. I mean, I would go to um, zoos oftentimes and be sort of depressed by like an orangutan or, you know, and just be like, wow, you can really see the emotion on their faces and that doesn't feel right. Mm. And, you know, yet a lot of zoos are, you know, maybe, you know, I, I don't know much about um, the behind the scenes or anything like that about zoos, but some of them are kind of um, there to preserve a species or they're educational. So, you know, I would think, well, SeaWorld, well, that's a really great place. You know, this zoo, not so much. Like, SeaWorld, it's happy and clean. And so so um, when I realized it was sort of the opposite, um, it, it blew my mind that, you know, having an animal sort of there working for food for entertainment is kind of the lowest on the ethical totem pole. I came to that determination much later, I think, about that, that personal feeling that I have. I came to that much later. So I wanted to go in with the preconceived notion that everybody likes SeaWorld. What about for people who have preconceptions that, that orcas are, are natural-born killers and that that's their only incentive? I mean, was it, was it important to you to make, uh, to differentiate between the fact that th those characteristics come out when they're in captivity specifically? That's true. I mean, I think it's interesting. I think that people might have known that they're like, they are predators and top predators and they take down great white sharks and, you know, do flip the sea lions up. I've seen, people have seen some of that video. But I think overall, at least I think in the U.S., they're, we're, we're very beholden to sort of SeaWorld's image of happy Shamu, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, I, you know, I think that the fact that they would have had incidents with people at these marine parks was a huge surprise to people. And, uh, thank you. And uh, talking of preconceptions, there's an uh, amazing clip in the film from the Richard Harris movie, Orca, which I think has formed, a, it was a, basically a Jaws rip-off that came after, after Jaws. Had you seen that film before? I remember seeing it as a little kid. <laughs> yeah. So you know? basically that, oh, that. and just being like wrecked by it. Like it was so sad. I mean, actually, our, one of our trainers, Jeff Fentry, um, he, he thinks that the parallel to King Kong um, <laughs> and Blackfish is really kind of yeah. dead on. Yeah. And I have to agree with that. Yeah, yeah. You know, so... Anyway, uh, yes, yeah, uh, yeah, so we've got some more questions now. There's, there's a lady here. Thank you. We'll Hi. Hi. Um, so my question would be, um, when you got all of the archive footage and you kind of had to put everything together, did you have a vision? And then when you went to interview all of the ex-trainers, did you have a set of questions or did you kind of put everything aside and kind of went with, with you know, with the flow? Um, to answer your first question, I think I always had in mind, like, um, you know, the structure of the film and how I wanted to tell the film. And then once I started interviewing, I just punted it. It was like all wrong, you know, that which is the beauty of documentary. Like, you have to be comfortable with the your filmmaking future being a question mark. <laughs> so, you know, it's um, very unstable. But, you know, again, I wanted to kind of come on. I thought I was making a film about human beings and their... Uh, animal counterparts in the world. Hmm. You know, and there's going to be like, SeaWorld's going to have a quote and then the former trainer's hmm. going to have a quote and it's just this big, you know, film just kind of talking, very philosophical. Like, I don't know what I was thinking. But it, that is not the film I ended up making. Um, once you know and find out what people are saying, you, you sort of are suddenly taken along a route and you're just, you're just keeping up. So um, that was new for me to sort of seize control. Um, I was also wondering um, when, 
when you release the film, when it goes out in cinemas, um, are you waiting for a specific response from people? And perhaps after making this film and perhaps showing it to your kids, I wanted to know what their reaction was. Interesting. Um, they, uh, I don't know what my react. I mean, I don't know the reaction that I want to ha- that I want people to have. I think I wanted to tell the story. I wanted. I guess I want people to who ingest that story to have the same feeling that I did, and that is, you know, nothing is what it seems. Uh, don't be a passive consumer. Um, you know, uh, just I. I I mean, I can say it. I just don't think, you know, after my two years of making this film, going from not going from taking my kids to SeaWorld to where I am now, um, I don't think it's a it's a wise place to spend your money. I just I, I hope people don't go. I mean, that's you know not at all how I started this movie out, but um, I do think that there is a place for SeaWorld given the resources that they have um, and the, the financial resource, uh, resources that they have to be able to do rehab release. Um, to be able to, uh, they could educate. I know they have information that they've gathered, you know, from all these years. They could, um, and, and, you know, there's cordoning off a cove, you know, and doing soft releases and C-pen releases and all that stuff. So anyway, there's, there's all this stuff that I've learned um, after having worked on this. But for me, honestly, I just, I just hope people are affected. You know, I call it ethical housekeeping. Like, I just hope this is just one more thing that people kind of can add to their, like, aha, you know, here's how I'm not going to spend my next vacation. You know, just like have a conversation over a glass of wine with somebody. You know, you don't need to call an 800 number or give money. I just, um, I set my standards pretty low for that, I think. Um, only because I think people are really smart. And I think that I actually think when you arm with them with the truth, they'll make the right decision for themselves and their families. So, yeah. Sorry, just one last question. Okay. <laughs> oh, no. uh, I haven't actually seen the film, but um, it kind of reminds me of The Cove, and I was wondering if there were simi- similarities between the two. I actually saw The Cove about halfway through making the film, and this speaks to my naivete, but I thought it was about stuff happening in Japan. Like, and then I'm doing this thing about SeaWorld in America and trainers, and you know? I thought there was like very little overlap and was blown away by just how much the two have, you know, in common in terms of, I think, they're, what they're trying to do. Um, and uh, Louis Safoyos and Rico Berry are very aware and they're supportive and it's, yeah, hopefully an amazing partnership in the future. Them. Fantastic. Thank you. And uh, there's a gentleman right here at the very, very back with the, uh, with the beard. Thank you. Hi, Gabriel. I saw the film at Sundance. Uh, oh. Congratulations. Absolutely brilliantly put together. Thank you. Um, it gives you, you know, you see them in the wild, you see them in captivity. I think it gives everybody an open mind. Like you say, you're not telling people what to think, which I thought was brilliant the way you did that. Thank you. But I'd like to ask you if uh, Dawn Blanchot's family in particular, if there's been any contact, um, if you had to, you know, communicate with them and say, this is what I'm doing, and subsequently, this is what I've done. Yeah. Um, I did reach out to them. They were the first people I called. I thought that they would be a voice in the movie and kind of a, the overarching voice in the movie. Um, I think the hardest lesson I had to learn was that, um, you know, for them was, you know, regurgitating this story, the incident of Dawn over and over again, which I kind of had to do for the film. That's not necessarily in step with healing 
as a family. Um, they're committed to that, and they're committed to remembering um, how great a person Don Brancho was. And um, you know, the film took a different route. So um, as much as I, I, you know, I've given it to them, give, given them access to see it, I don't know that all of them have seen it. Um, but I can only just sort of hope that they see that, you know, I can, I can only hope that Don would be proud of something like this because um, of how much she loved the whales. And I think also because uh, I think her sister said to me she would want her coworkers to be safe. Mm. So um, if, if that's all that, uh, that I would know, if, if their family was okay with that, I think I'd be, I'd, I'd be satisfied. Yeah, it's a tough one though. Thanks very much. Um, anyone with a last question? Yes, please, sir. Thank you. And this is the last one. Thank you. Um, what are you going to do next? Are you going to carry on making moving documentaries or are you going to go for something totally different? Um, I don't know. Um, yeah, <laughs> I have an idea I'm working on and, and it's always percolating. Like as a documentary filmmaker, you always have something, doing something up there in the soup. Um, so I hope, uh, I hope to have something out um, in the future, but yes, I'm still, still making films. And do you have any advice to impart to young filmmakers who might want to follow in your footsteps? What, what should they do? How should they go about it? <sighs> um, <laughs> Sixty-four yes. thousand dollars. No, it's a great, it's a great question. I think um, I can only really speak to documentary mm -hmm. filmmaking. Um, so I would say that the, I think I spoke to a great filmmaker about this, and she was also a documentary filmmaker. But I think, like a film, seems like this. Um, sort of gestalt, like big, huge, oh my God, you made a film. <laughs> and it, it always seems like it's more than the sum of its parts, yeah. but it's really just the parts. So it's really just getting up every morning and doing an interview and you know, spending a little money on insurance <laughs> as possible and getting on a plane with your frequent flyer miles, with your gear and doing that interview. Um, so if you just remember that if you just keep working at the parts and getting up like it's your nine to five, don't spend time in the cafe, you know, mm. thinking and dreaming, just blue collar it. You know what I mean? Like just get up and do it and a just part by part by part. Yeah. Right. Um, you will have a film. And then when you have a film, I don't care how good it is. I don't care how short it is. It doesn't matter. You're, you're now a filmmaker. So get, get there. Um, you know, a little blood, sweat, and tears. It doesn't hurt, but, but <laughs> get there. So I think that's... That's a, that's a lovely note in which to end. Uh, actually, uh, thanks so much for coming. Blackfish, of course, is out on July 26th. Thanks for your questions. Thanks most of all to Gabriella Capperthwaite. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.